a number of years ago, there was a heavyweight uh, boxing championship that was going to be fought. There was a fight, a title fight that was taking place uh, between a little-known boxer, I'm sure none of you have ever heard of before, named Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson. And uh, I made this mistake on uh, Wednesday evening. I won't make it again. He was in a fight, a title fight, with another little-known boxer that I'm sure you've never heard of before, Evander Holyfield. And uh, they had fought once previously, and this was a rematch. And they got into it, and they started to go at it. And in round three, the referee called a halt to the fight because in round three, Mike Tyson, as he'd closed to Evander Holyfield, uh, they had locked up and grappled together. And uh, Mike Tyson decided the best thing for him to do in that moment was to bite off the top of the ear of Evander Holyfield. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with boxing, that's kind of frowned upon just a little bit. And so uh, the referee, seeing the intensity and the ferocity, literally, with which Mike Tyson was approaching his opponent, in his wisdom, called a halt to the fight. Mike Tyson lost by means of biting off Evander Holyfield's ear. And so that was the end of it. You know, I reflect on that this morning because when we, when we watch these fights, we see these, these great competitors go at it. Uh, we, we admire their athleticism, we admire their skill, and we appreciate what goes into the preparation that goes into this sort of uh, contest. And undoubtedly, as we reflect upon boxers fighting in the ring, we're all aware of and familiar with the fact that the Christian life itself is a bit of a fight. We know that God is a warrior. He's a man of war, as Moses sung in Exodus chapter 15. We know that he fights for us. But I cannot help but wonder, sometimes as I look at my fellow brothers and sisters, whether or not we're of the opinion, perhaps, that God as the referee has called a halt to our own fight. Are we in the ring struggling and contending for the gospel? Or did we encounter the enemy who threw a dirty punch, who engaged in a low blow, who cheated, who broke the rules, and we have said to ourselves, oh, well, this isn't a fair fight, and so I'm done with this. Does that maybe describe some of us here this morning? The Apostle Paul has been encouraging his protege, Timothy, to lead the church in Ephesus and to lead well. And it calls him into conflict. It calls him into a fight. He has within his church people who are standing up and presenting themselves, who are standing forward as teachers, as authoritative figures who are teaching false doctrine. They're engaging in genealogies and myths. They are twisting and contorting the law. They are misrepresenting the nature of grace. They're involved in all sorts of other side teachings, which they think help lend credence to their own false propositions, side teachings such as asceticism and the forbidding of marriage. And they're getting into all of these, these details. And so Paul writes to Timothy, he says, when you lead these people, when you pastor and shepherd the church there at Ephesus, you need to pay attention to certain things. Men and women need to conduct themselves a certain way in the household of God. When you appoint leaders to the office of elder, when you appoint pastors, here are the qualifications that you need to be looking for. When you appoint 
deacons. Here are the qualifications you need to be looking for there. Here is how you care for widows. And he's been going on saying, this is how you are to lead. And yet at the end of this letter, as we're approaching the final chapters, we're coming to the final verse, there is in the apostle Paul's mind this idea that perhaps Timothy might be just a little too, dare I say, Canadian. He might be just a little too apologetic. Quick to say, I'm sorry, but reluctant to say, here is the word of God. Here is what the Bible says. And so he exhorts him the same way that I pray the word of God would exhort you this morning. He says in verse 12, fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. We hear that word fight, and immediately we're going to think in our mind of visions, ideas of two gladiators going at it in the ring. They're dancing around, as Muhammad Ali would say, dance like a butterfly, sting like a bee. They are skillfully and artfully circling each other, careful not to get too close, choosing their moment. There is no wasted energy. There is no wasted motion. They come in for quick, decisive jabs, avoiding each other, throwing up blocks where, where necessary. And as you and I are sitting here today, we're thinking... That is not my understanding of the Christian life. If there's a fight that is had in the gospel in becoming believers, it's less like that and more like a schoolyard scrap. Less decisive, organized, disciplined, focused blows, more like clawing and scratching and we're on the ground rolling around and choking each other and biting. And, and uh, that's more what your understanding is. I want you to understand that None of those specifics are important here. What Paul is driving at with Timothy is that he is called to fight the good fight. And when we think of fighting, didn't our mothers tell us that all fighting was always wrong and always bad? Not according to the word of God. There is a fight that is good. There is a struggle to which we are called, which is glorious. The good fight. And Paul is going to quantify that in his next statement. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Now, given the whole context of 1 Timothy, we understand this fight of faith. It isn't as though what Timothy is trying to do is to fight and struggle through his beliefs to try and understand what is true, what is the gospel, he knows what the gospel is. He understands who Jesus is. He has been mentored by Paul, the greatest missionary of the first century. He has within his church individuals who are seeking to subvert the gospel, who are seeking to subtly add things to it and detract other things from it. Paul's exhortation to Timothy at the conclusion of 1 Timothy is that there is a good fight and he is wrapping up everything he has said to him at this point, which means that in context, what Paul is encouraging Timothy to do is to stand up not in a struggle to try to figure out what it is he believes, but to understand the truth of what has already been clearly revealed, that there is hope, that there is life, forgiveness in the cross. And in order to make that plain to the nations, even within his own house, even within his own church at Ephesus. He has to be willing to engage in controversy and rebuke. 
He has to be willing to engage in the fight within his own church if he's going to preserve the clarity of the gospel in order that future generations may hear it. Paul makes this similar sort of statement in Galatians chapter 2. Don't flip there, just listen. He makes a statement writing to the churches in Galatia. When he engaged in conflict with the Judaizers who were insisting that circumcision was a necessary prerequisite to salvation, writing to the church in Galatia, he says, to them who would add circumcision, a work to the gospel, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment in order that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. That's the good fight. We're not here to be choked out. We're not here to tap out. There's no quitting. There's no giving up. And the referee isn't stopping the fight. We are here to stand up for the truth of the gospel. Paul says that to Timothy. He says, fight the good fight of faith. And then he makes this other statement. He says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, as we're reading this, we're undoubtedly conflicted now. I thought that salvation was a simple matter of understanding some basic academic ideas about Jesus Christ, namely that there was this guy, he lived about 2,000 years ago, give or take. He lived a pretty good life. He died on the cross. His, his life is considered an atonement for Christians, and, and so he is bearing the penalty for their sins. And if I just believe that, if I just acknowledge those simple historical facts about what happened 2,000 years ago, then lo and behold, I am saved. As though all that salvation is, all that is consists in being forgiven before God is simply knowing what he has done. As we read this verse, we should be completely dispossessed of any of those notions that salvation is a matter of simply knowing some historical facts about what took place 2,000 years ago. It goes much deeper than that. The expression here is to take hold of it, to own it in a sense. Uh, Another way you could translate this is to possess it, to grasp it. And, And when you hear that, it's not simply a matter of understanding what happened It's a matter of owning it, holding it. In the same way that I might illustrate, if you've ever borrowed someone's car, it's not your car. They loan you the car. They give you the keys. You're going to be good to it. You're going to take care of it. On a number of occasions, several of you have borrowed my truck to move furniture, and uh, and that's great. And I give it to you, and it's got like a quarter tank of gas. I do that on purpose because I know how you're going to give it back to me a full tank of gas. Prices being what they are, I take advantage of, uh, you know, you need to use my truck? Go right ahead. Give me that free tank of gas. I tease, you laugh, that's good. You and I both know that whenever you've borrowed my vehicle, because it is not your own, and some of you are under this idea that, oh, if I mess up the pastor's vehicle, there's lightning or something that's going to fall from heaven. None of that is true. But you know that when you're loaned a vehicle, it's not yours, and you want to take good care of it. You want to return it to the owner who loaned it to you in at least a good a shape, if not better, is what you received it. And that's right. That's right. With our own possessions, those things that we own, we lean into them 
a little bit more forcefully. We're not as careful with them. They belong to us, and therefore we take full advantage. We own those things. If I walk through my house, through the front door of my house, and I want to slam the door behind me, well, I'll slam that door right behind me. If I want to throw myself down in my lazy boy, why, I'm going to throw myself down in my lazy boy. We own certain possessions, and if you stop to think about it, you tend to really, really be rough with the things you own in a way that you wouldn't be with something that was simply borrowed. In this sense, Paul is saying to Timothy, you're going to own the gospel. You're going to lean on it. You're going to throw yourself on it. It's going to belong to you. You have to take hold of it. You have to possess it. Now, this goes far beyond any mere intellectual academic understanding. You see, I can say to you that I believe that Jesus is real, that he lived, that he died, that he was risen, that he was raised from the dead on the third day. And I could even tell you that as a result of this, I am aware that there is a coming kingdom with a coming king who will one day reign over all of this earth. I can know those things to be true without necessarily owning the reality that is presented by those facts. If Christ is coming back, if there is a coming kingdom that will one day be established on this earth, if, to put it in modern political vernacular, there is a coming permanent prime minister who does not stand for election and will not be defeated in the next round of elections, if there is one who will govern me, who will hold authority over me for all of eternity, if I truly own that and if I'm really leaning into that, fundamental things about my life have to change. Less and less does it matter what I want. More and more does it matter than what he wants. And Paul's statement to Timothy here is, you've got to lean into that. If we would be good fighters, if we would give ourselves entirely to the struggle of the gospel, we have to lean on the reality that the victory is already won, that the conquering king is returning. If we don't lean into that, then our fighting is going to be at best half-hearted. Oh, a little jab, and then I'm going to tuck away and run back and hide in my corner. I'm waiting for a referee to call stop. If there's a king who is coming, and he is worthy of our most valiant of efforts, I can't help but think of uh, Roman and Vicky. 30 years to translate the Bible into another language that they did not grow up knowing or speaking. A number of years, 10, I think, just to learn the language, to learn the culture, in order to develop an alphabet, in order to spend the next 20 translating. Why do that if there is no real Jesus and if he's not really coming back? You only do something like that if you're really owning the gospel. This is a familiar theme to the Apostle Paul. He says this about himself. In Philippians, he makes the statement, uh, not that I have already 
Uh, Not that I have already obtained it or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's what he's telling Timothy. Throw yourself into the fight. Make this gospel your own. Own it. Possess it for the one who took possession of you. If you stop to think about it, a fighting analogy makes perfect sense. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Faith is to believe in that which we cannot see, to hope in that which there's no visible empirical evidence, nothing that we could measure or assess. Faith is the certainty of things that you can't see. And in that way, you're owning something that is beyond what you can reasonably test or measure. You're taking what you are being told and you're accepting it and believing in it and hoping in it even though you can't see it. The Apostle Paul says, he has made it his own for which Christ Jesus has made Paul his own and we're to take the faith and make it our own because we have been called into it. Now, when we say fight, there are two ways to understand it. You can be in a fight and you can be fighting. To engage in a fight is to be in a fight. There's two ways to understand this word faith here. You are in faith. You can be in a state of grace. But to be in that state of grace, to really be believing, you also have to be taking steps of obedience. To say that I'm in the faith, but I don't actually act in faith, is like saying I'm in the ring, but I'm not swinging. I'm in the fight, so to speak, but I'm not actually fighting. And here's where the gospel gets really, really pointed. Jesus, the Bible, does not know of any Christian who has been effectively called by him into salvation who, as a result of that call, is not fighting for the sake of the gospel. That's what Paul says here. Not that I've already obtained it. He's not already been made perfect. He's not already fully sanctified. He's still a sinner. He's still struggling with his sin. But he says, I press on to make it my own, to own it, because Jesus Christ has made me his own. If Jesus Christ has died for you, and if you have hoped in what he did for you on the cross, if you are his, then you are pushing into making this eternal life your own. Not that anything we do earns our standing in heaven, but that as a result of what he has already done, we cannot help but engage in the fight. You say, okay, so what does it look like? If I'm to be in this fight of the Christian life, What exactly does it look like? Two things, running and chasing. Running and chasing. Look back at verse 11. He makes a statement, O man of God, flee these things. No longer is your career your priority. No longer is money your priority. There are lots of things which we pursue, whether it be family, whether it be athletic competitions. These are not the priorities to which we have been called. He spells this out specifically saying the love of money. And we saw last week there's a a fine tension there. We all have to have money in order to live, but it is not to be our goal. In the same way, There are lots of things which God gives us which are incredible blessings, our jobs, our families indeed, but they're not the pursuit. Christ is the pursuit. And to illustrate this, he says, as for you, O man of God, flee these things. In context, he's specifically referencing the love of money. Flee these things. Run from it. Now, if you've ever been chased, you know there comes a moment as you are running. I see this in my children 
all the time when they're playing tag. Chloe has got long legs. I love her. Olive's got short legs. Chloe chases Olive. There comes a moment where Olive, you can see it. I don't want to get tagged, but I'm really tired. She's coming for me, and she starts to weigh it out. There comes a moment where she says, I'm just going to slow down and stop. And eventually, Chloe tags her. Funny thing is, Olive can outrun Chloe anytime she wants. She's really fast. My puppy, Penny, my German short-haired pointer, if I unleash the dog into the backyard, and then I say to Olive, go catch that dog, and she takes off, and then I say to Chloe, go catch your sister, and she takes off, Chloe will never catch Olive, and Olive sooner or later will catch Penny a German short-haired pointer that runs like 40 kilometers an hour. I am not joking. Eventually, the dog gets tired and says, I'm just going to let this six-year-old little girl grab me. And Chloe has given up way before then. It's interesting. Thomas Chalmers, a Puritan preacher, he wrote a sermon which is widely quoted. Listen to this. The expulsive power of a new affection. In this particular sermon, Chalmers mentions a couple of things. He says, young men, they love pleasure. They want to sleep in late. They want to do what feels fun and happy. And there comes a moment in their time where they decide that they want to make money. And so they can say no to pleasures. They can discipline themselves to get up, to go to work, to show up on time in order to advance their career. What they used to love, namely pleasure, namely sleeping in in the morning, they now can give that up when their heart starts to desire something else. He goes on to say, even when it comes to money, Chalmers makes the statement, even when it comes to money and the love of money, that too can be dispossessed when a man starts to pursue other things in life, such as an ideology or political power. The love of power can displace the love of money. The love of money can displace the love of pleasure. And Chalmers' point here is that the heart will always have an object of worship. You cannot destroy an empty void in a person's soul. He will chase after something. He will run after it. It will take hold of him. And the way that you are transformed is not through sheer mental effort or rigorous self-discipline to stop living the sinful life, but the way that you are transformed is by having your heart filled with a new affection, namely the affection of Jesus. And when you chase after him, when you love him, it's just like my six-year-old outrunning my nine-year-old, chasing down a dog that really should outrun all of us. She loves that dog so much, she will run all night and day in order to capture it. If you would flee from these things, the love of money, your career, not that you don't need a job or you don't need money, but if you would flee from making those things the central pursuit of your life, the only way you'll be delivered is if Christ becomes the central pursuit of your life. He says, flee these things and pursue instead. He talks about righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Now, as we consider this text, it's really significant. 
We all come from a lifestyle of sin. We've all chased after things like pleasure or money. We've all made idols out of family or career. We've all done those things. And yet, just looking at this passage, the Word of God is calling us to look away from our past and to look towards our future. To look away from where we have come from and to focus instead on where Christ is taking us. There are two things, I think, which exert an undue influence on us. And the reason they exert undue influence on us, again, is because we, not, we have not fully set our heart upon the glory that is to be revealed when we see Jesus. These two things are, number one, guilt over past mistakes, previous failures. Number two, nostalgia for a previous time and a different era. We look back at the past and we feel ashamed or we look back at the past and we wish we could go back there. The embittered wife who is annoyed at the husband she married thinks about the boyfriend she used to date. The overbearing father who didn't make it as an athlete trying to relive his glory days through his son or perhaps for so many of us, that rush of zeal that we experienced in the early days of our walk with Christ, where now we get up in the morning and it's a struggle, we gotta go to work, we gotta go to church, that zeal, that passion seems to not be there like it used to. All of us are on a journey through time. And Christ calls us forward. Which means that in the cross and in the resurrection, the guilt of previous mistakes is forgiven, addressed, and removed. But also remember the resurrection. The promise of eternal life, the hope of rising again from the grave, no longer being bound by this broken and twisted body that is always against us, always experiencing disease, that is always leading us into temptation through its own weakness, this body too shall pass, which means that if we're walking with Christ, tomorrow is always better than today, even though tomorrow brings a new set of difficulties and a new set of struggles. When we wake up tomorrow, undoubtedly we're going to experience darkness and all the forces of evil. It's interesting that Scripture promises a constant slide into darkness and depravity, and yet as we walk step by step, day by day, into that struggle, we cannot help but notice the fact we're getting closer to Jesus, which means that there's not to be a nostalgic, wistful longing for the past, and we should not be trapped into thinking that we are useless to God as a result of previous mistakes. If we're looking in the rearview mirror, we're not looking at where we're supposed to be driving. This passage says that we are called to fight. How can any of us do that if we're not looking at the foe in front of us and instead we're looking at our own lives behind us? Flee these things. Turn your eyes forward 
and pursue, as the scripture says, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. But perhaps the most significant thing I want to draw your attention to this morning in this particular passage. Many of you have heard the quote from St. Francis of Assisi. It's widely attributed to him. We don't know for a fact that he actually ever said this, but nonetheless, the quote goes, and I'm sure you've all heard it before, preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. That's the quote. And so we hear that and we say, okay, so basically we need to go out and we need to be good people. We need to be kind and loving. We need to do all kinds of sacrificial things. We need to do incredible acts of generosity for the world around us so that at some point in time, they'll look at us, they'll see, wow, you guys are really nice people. And then they'll say, what's your secret? And that's the moment where supernaturally God's going to open the door and allow us to share the gospel. Now, don't get me wrong. When Paul calls us to it, when he says to Timothy, you're to pursue a life of gentleness and righteousness and faith and all of this, that's there. We're to live a life of holiness, but that's not the business card. You know, when you go to business conventions, businessmen, they network, they, they get together, they talk, they hand each other business cards. When you go to a business convention and you're networking, you're not handing out your full two, three page resume. You're not giving people your full vita of everything you've accomplished. When you start to engage in a relationship with anyone, when you begin in introductions, particularly at a business convention, you start off handing them your business card. What? is the business card of the Christian life. Paul says that. Here is where it all begins. Verse 12, he says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And notice this, about which you made the good confession. The calling card, the business card for us is to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. When we go out into this world, It should be as Christians who have not yet to make a confession of Jesus, but as Christians who have already made a confession and make confessing Christ a daily practice. We're to make the good confession, which he's going to talk about with regards to Jesus, who confessed before Pontius Pilate under threat of execution that indeed he was the Messiah. We lead with the gospel And then we follow it with a life that is righteous. We lead with the truth. And then we do our best to live a life that reflects that truth. You're here this morning, you're thinking, Pastor, that's um, easier said than done. And undoubtedly you're thinking to yourself, how does one actually do this? One of the phrases is mentioned here is godliness. We've talked about it quite a bit in 1 Timothy. Godliness is this idea that in every situation, you enter into it with an idea of acting and conducting yourself in such a manner that it brings glory to him, that he would be pleased by it. And I fear that for some of us here, that's the real mistake that we're making. We struggle to confess to those around us that Christ is Lord because perhaps he's not. Perhaps he's not the Lord of our life. Perhaps we've never actually come before him and said, I wish and I will for you to take control over me. And we've never surrendered to him in faith. You need to do that. You need to give yourself over to Jesus. 
And what that means is allowing him to be sovereign over your life, which will lead you into controversy. It will lead you into conflict. It puts you in a ring where you're fighting. There's no ignoring the plain truth of this passage. Walking with Christ is a fight with this world. In 1997, I came home from school. My dad was home from work. Strange, she never came home early, but he was home early that day because there was something happening live on TV that he wanted to see, and he wanted me to see it too. It's about 3.30 in the afternoon. I came home. The ta- it was still on a tape delay. He called me into the family room where the TV was tuned to the news, and he said, I want you to see this. Something truly amazing is happening. The scene was Hong Kong, government house. Hong Kong was being turned over to the Chinese by Britain. Government house. There was a flag raised up high. It was the Union Jack. And my dad said, do you see that flag? There was this full military honor guard standing there. They were getting ready, British soldiers, getting ready to strike down the Union Jack and to walk away whereas Chinese communist soldiers were about to approach in order to hoist their own flag. He said, do you see, son, that flag on top of that pole there, the Union Jack? I said, I see it. He says, do you know what that means? He says, it means authority for this island. Sovereignty for this island rests in London. And when they take down that flag, others are going to come in. And they're going to hoist up the five-star red flag of communist China. And he says, do you know what that means? It means sovereignty over this island will belong in Beijing. And so as you're here this morning, the question I have for you now Which flag do you fly? Do you strike down your own flag? And do you hoist the banner of the gospel? I hope that you do. And if you don't, and if you're not sure what that means, I pray you would come and talk to someone about that. Not tomorrow, not next week, right now. Make sure that the banner of Christ is your banner.